Again, take your Bibles and go to 1 Timothy chapter 2 this morning. And we're going we're gonna to jump right into the passage this morning. And there in 2 Timothy chapter 2, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. <clears throat> the Bible says, I exhort, therefore, that first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men, for kings and for all that are in authority, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and honesty. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. I want to read that last few verses again together, verse 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Let us, let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much again, Lord, for who you are. We thank you for allowing us to meet in your house. Lord, we know these are just walls of brick and mortar and wood. Lord, but we know that you're here with us. You're here among us where two or three are gathered in your name, Lord. We have church. And Lord, and we've had this organization come together, Lord, and we're thankful so much for your local church here uh, and this community. Lord, we ask that uh, you just meet with us in a way that we know for sure that we're meeting with you, Lord. And we're very thankful that you are our mediator. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we're thankful that you sent the ransom. Lord, we love you this morning. Lord, help me to convey what you've given to me, Lord, in a way, Lord, that just invigorates us, gets us excited about who you are and who you are in us. Lord, help us to be reminded this morning of how great thou art. Lord, and we love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So again, welcome to our Sunday morning service. And I'm happy, very happy to see each of you. And I know this, this time of change and COVID and all these things like that is, is kind of crazy. I, I realize that. And we're about to get more strict beginning tomorrow. And, and I understand that as well. And we don't have to agree with all those things, but uh, we do have to play along, as they say. Uh, but as you know, as I already mentioned this morning, 1 Timothy is the book that we're going to be reading through. We've already been doing, I guess, almost half this month. Uh, every, every verse, every chapter, every day as we are immersed in the scriptures. And we do that every month. Uh, or, yes, every month. And sometimes we stay in one for longer than a month like we did this past year in the book of James. And I want to point out that while there is very much to preach on from 1 Timothy, and after we covered a lot of ground last week, and we did, we, we covered a lot of ground last week, we're going to focus only on a few verses this morning, uh, those few verses that I just read to you, verses 1 through 6. But as, we, as, as we've already read through them, I want you to notice a couple things there. I want you to notice in verse 1, uh, or just notice the word all. I had a preacher one time tell me that the word all means all, and that's really all it means. And, uh, but look at verse number one. Notice the word all men, or the phrase rather. And then in verse two, all that are in authority. And then who will have all men to be saved in verse four. And then in verse six, a ransom for all. So I think there's a strong emphasis here. Paul's making a strong emphasis here on all. All people. All people. But not just in general. In these first few verses, Paul, I think, puts every person in one category. One category. What's our takeaway? 
there is one people. I've entitled this message just simply one. But we see very clearly in this passage and many other passages, and we'll look at some of those. But there is simply one people group in this world. We're all in the same. We're all in the same boat, if you will. You know, in Acts chapter 17, the Apostle Paul preached uh, there, if you remember, in Athens. You know, to the very idolatrous city. Uh, he told them about what they considered the unknown God. And that's Paul kind of used that. He capitalized on that, on that, uh, on that thought there. Uh, and in his sermon, he said something to them. He said a lot of things. All his sermon is applicable to us. But he said something that really kind of fits in our passage today. And also something that is very needed today. If you don't mind, take your Bibles. Don't lose your place there in 2 Timothy, or 1 Timothy 2. But go to Acts 17, verse 26. Acts 17, verse 26. I'll turn there with you. Acts chapter 17. We're in the book of Acts on, on Thursday nights. And we're getting close to Acts 17. We just started Acts 13. And uh, it's, the church is leaving Jerusalem. It's getting bigger. And we're going out there. And, or or we, I'm talking like I'm with Paul and, and Barnabas and Mark in that boat going to uh, Cyprus there. But the, the, the gospel is being spread. But look at today. Look at Acts chapter 17. Look at verse 26 again. Uh, let's look at 25 again. Remember, he's in this concept there. You see in verse 23, to the unknown God. He's talking about that. He said that God made the world and all things that are therein. In verse 24, verse 25, he says, Neither is worship with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth life, or giveth to all life and breath and all things, speaking of God, and hath made of one blood all nations of men. Of one blood. All nations of men. In other words, contrary to any idea that we have today, any idea that's ever existed in this world, contrary to any political understanding, any cultural understanding, any social understanding of who we are as humans, we are all the same blood. We're all the same blood created by the same God. And sometimes we refer, we often refer today as races, as a, as a way maybe to distinguish ourselves politically or culturally. But we're not defined even biologically or genetically by our skin color. Where are you at, Brother Billy? You back there somewhere? We were talking about this the other day. You, made, you, you brought it back to my attention. So we're not categorized that way. And more importantly, God doesn't categorize us that way. We're all one people, the Bible says. We're all the same. And we all have needs. The Bible says we have the same ultimate need. And to emphasize this even more, God, through the Apostle Paul here, commands that we as believers, we as Christians, ought to pray not just for each other, not just for those people that look like us or talk like us or are from the same country or the same background as us. Who are we supposed to pray for? All men. All people. He says that, first of all, supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving of thanks be made for all men. Remember, prayer is a type of worship. The men and I prayed, uh, a few men and I prayed this morning before we, before we preached, before we come in here this morning. And that's very easily one of the most important things that we do in our lives. Prayer. It's a type of worship. Let's look at these four types. Paul gives us a couple things here. Supplication, prayers, intercession, and giving of thanks. Supplications. Very easy, very simply this morning. We'll look, we won't dwell too long on these. Uh, but supplication is simply asking God for our needs. 
our, our provisions, our daily provisions and our specific provisions, whether they be spiritual or physical or emotional. And then number two, he says prayers. Now, this is prayer in general. This is just prayer in general. But this is where we draw nigh to God. You know, can you imagine? I've been married for 25, 26 years. I just had an anniversary. 26, I almost messed up. <laughs> 26 years. And we communicate. Why are we so close to each other? Because we communicate. It just doesn't make any sense to us as Christians. If we want to draw close to our Savior, we've got to communicate with Him. And that's what this second prayer is. We must have a relationship with Him. That is a relationship. Can you imagine? Uh, my wife might enjoy this for maybe a couple days. But if we lived in totally complete parts of the house, you know, she lived in this room. She lived in, and, and, and I lived in a different room, different bathrooms, different kitchens. Oh, we're married, but we never talk to anybody. We never talk to each other, rather. How, would, how long would that last? And even if it lasted for 50 years, how close could we possibly be if we never communicate? How can we be close to God if we never talk to God? This is where we draw near to God, this prayer with our words, our thoughts of adoration. And then there's intercessions. That's just like it sounds, to intercede for others. Intercessory prayer is, is very Christ-like. You remember Moses on the mount? Lord, forgive them. And if you don't forgive them, blot my name out of the book of life. That's a tall order. The Lord in the Garden of Gethsemane. I'm here to pray. He prayed deeply, intercessory prayer for you and for me. And then there's the giving of thanks. I like this one. I exhort, therefore, that first of all, the giving of thanks be made for all men. Hmm. This is simply being thankful. And I realize it may be difficult to be thankful for all men. I mean, how do we be thankful for those who wrong us? How do we be thankful for those who do not like us? But God is telling Paul to tell us that we are to be thankful, to give thanks for all men. Now, I don't think this is a we should be thankful for their wickedness and thankful for their mistreating of us. But maybe in a way be thankful that they're still here. There's still a soul. There's still a chance for them to get saved. And they're not as wicked as they, as they could be to us. That's something to be thankful for. I think it just takes the whole perspective and it turns it around. When we look at lives, when we look at people, especially those who wrong us, we look at them in a way that, well, I don't, the first thing, we're, we're negative thinkers. I mean, that's just, that's just who we are. We see that, oh, he, he did this to that person or he did this to me. And Paul is telling us, to look at the bright side of it. Don't, don't neglect those things. Be thankful for him anyway or her anyway. And after giving us these four types of prayer, he, he writes who we should pray for. Of course, people in general. We talked a little bit about that. But then notice also people in government. Ooh, we don't, do we want to talk about that today? Especially what's going on in, back in the United States. It's craziness. We didn't, none of us saw that coming, right? I don't think. But we're supposed to pray for kings and for all that are in authority. So we as Christians who have access to the king of kings, we're to pray for all people. And we, of course, don't know all people, but we are to pray for those we do. If we know the name of the leaders and or even if you should know the name of that leader, there are some people that we should pray for. We should pray for everybody. Those that are in our family, 
We should pray for them. We should pray regularly for them. And then there are those that we don't know personally, but we know of. We should also pray for them. You know, sometimes there are those people that we purposely choose not to pray for. Am I the only one that's ever been there? You're in your prayer list and they're on there and you know it's not recently I've done, done this as your pastor. <laughs> been many years ago. And you're going through there like, oh, they got me. I'm just, I'm just going to skip over their name in prayer today. And then you do that and it's, it's really more damaging to you than it, than it is to them. So we must pray for them, those who even offend us. I mean, think of our Savior. If he, didn't, if he only prayed for those he that didn't offend him, who in the world would Jesus pray for? We all offended our God. You know, forgetting about someone is one thing in our prayer, but to purposely pray for someone or to forget to pray for someone and out of spite, that should never be a characteristic of believers. We must pray for all people. And verse 2, I think, gets a little more interesting because, again, it says we are to pray for kings and for those in authority. Remember, we're all one people. Again, we who have access to the king of kings should pray for our earthly king, president, chancellor, wherever you want to put in there. Notice that Paul does not write if we like them. He doesn't, he doesn't write if they're in the same political party. He doesn't write even if there are believers we should pray for them. He says pray for kings. Pray for them. Under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, Paul writes that we should pray for those who are over us. So I believe that this verse here and many others actually, from presidents to police officers, we are to make supplications, prayers, intercession, and give thanks for all men, including those in authority. Now think about this for a moment. Before we, we, we kind of, maybe as I, as I talked about and as I preached about preaching for those in authority, maybe some figures came into your head. Oh, I want to pray for that guy. Why should I pray for him? And I had a, a friend of mine tell me one time, if you don't pray for God to do something for them, do something to them. That's the wrong prayer. That's not the kind of prayer we're talking about. Lord, just help him to do that kind of thing. And that's not the kind of prayer Paul is talking about that. But again, think about this for a moment. Who did Paul have in mind when he wrote that we should pray for kings? Who was the king of the world at that time? What, what's that? A little higher? Higher than Caesar? Nero. Yeah, there we go. Nero. This book is written around A.D. 61 or 62. Nero was in full power. He says pray for Nero. The most powerful empire on earth at that time was the Roman Empire. Paul was a citizen of that Roman Empire. And by the way, the fact that he's a citizen of that empire gives us some guidance on what we should do as citizens of our nations today. So just let that think about that and study through that. But think about this. If Paul was martyred in Rome by Nero, as tradition holds, he was killed by a king for which he made supplications for. He was killed by a king who he prayed for. He was killed by a king who he interceded for and even gave thanks for. You see, the truth of the matter is that we generally think too much of ourselves and of those similar to us. And in reality, in the eyes of God, we all need him. We are all in the same category. We are the same. We're all in this world together. And without Christ, no one gets out alive. None of us, not one of us. It is a level playing field before God. We are one people. 
with one great need. We are one people with a great God. And then verses, look at verse 5. Jump down to verse 5. It says, for there is one God. So we are one people, but we have one God. We have one God. Now think about this. Even with man's age-old concoction over the thousands of years of his plethora of gods, and, and by the way, we look back at those wooden statues and those things like that, and we think it's so petty and immature. They're still here today. They just fit in our pockets better. They're still here today. But if you put all that together and you study it out with a logical mind, there can really be only one God. In fact, Romans chapter 1, verse 20 states that even creation itself gives us evidence for this. He says, For the invisible things of Him from the creation of the world are clearly seen. Clearly seen. Now, to not see something that's clearly seen, that's only one of two things. Either you really don't want to see it or you're blind. To clearly, he said, the evidence is here. And that verse continues by saying that the evidence of God is understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. In other words, the things that are made, the things that we see, point to our Creator God, even his eternal power and Godhead, even the Trinity, if you will. Have you ever noticed the great similarities? so evident throughout creation? Have you ever just studied a little bit about the things in our, in our world, how similar things are? Things that you wouldn't think had any connection, they're similar. And while there is, of course, great variety, because our, love, our, our, our Lord loves variety, there is also a distinct similarity at the core. I mean, think about this. From eyes to lungs. I mean, most mammals, all mammals, <laughs> have eyes and lungs. Uh, to the way animals eat and digest across the planet, and even deeper than that, an apparent threefold existence in everything there is, beginning with God. We have the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. There's time, space, and matter, body, mind, and soul, past, present, and future, and you can go on and on and on and on. How did that happen by chance? Unbelieving scientists today say that the great similarities throughout life point to a common ancestor biologically. But in reality... They point to a common designer. They point to God. They point to God. The Old Testament prophet Malachi, he was making an argument one time to, to help the Jews there treat other Jews and other Gentiles better, or Gentiles better. He said this, or asked this, Have we not all one Father? Hath not one God created us? And of course he was right. Moses wrote in Deuteronomy 6, 4, Hear, O Israel, our, or the Lord our God is one Lord. And Jesus echoed that same statement verbatim in Mark chapter 12. Even more, Paul wrote to the church in Ephesians chapter 4, 5, and 6. He says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Why is this important, you might ask? Why is it important that there is one people and one God? Well, one, it's scriptural truth. That makes it important. And if all the earth is filled with one people... And if we are under one God, does that not put all of us in the same category, under the same God? Same category. Everybody. Same category. Same God. And what is that category that we're in? Paul describes this category very well in the book of Romans. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Don't lose your place there in 2 Timothy 2, but go to Romans chapter 3. 
After proving the dire condition of all humanity in chapters 1 and 2 of the book of Romans, especially chapter 1, we've already quoted a little bit from that, but God through Paul here in Romans makes it abundantly clear where we stand before God. Speaking as a Jew about Jews and Gentiles, speaking as a Jew about the entire world, he writes in chapter 3, I guess I should turn there myself, in chapter 3, look there at verse number 9. He says, what then? Remember, he's speaking to the Jews and Gentiles, speaking as a Jew to the world. What then? Are we better than they? No, in no wise. For we have before proved, both Jews and Gentiles, that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way. They are altogether become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good. No, not one. Their throat is an open sepulcher. That means like a grave. Our, our mouth speaks right down to the depths of death within us. With our tongues they have used deceit. The poison of asp is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God. Before their eyes, look down at verse 23. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You see, we are all one people in a very miserable condition. No doubt about it. And there is most definitely one God. The problem is, again, that every single one of us from Adam and beyond have offended God. We have offended God. I've been thinking about or studying through the book of Genesis here lately as, a, as kind of a sad, a sad study. I, I just can't get away from Genesis. I'm always in there. And I was thinking, I was envisioning, envisioning a, a, maybe a movie production. Where you at, Brother Shannon? Maybe we can get together on this. So I, I picture Eve there eating the forbidden fruit. And the Bible doesn't talk about how, the time difference between her eating and his eating. So she eats the forbidden fruit, and maybe she's got a, an uneaten one on the other hand. And she looks and she realizes that her, that her state has changed. And she walks toward Adam. And Adam recognizes her in his holiness, in his perfectness, in his sinless state. Oh, Eve. Oh, Eve. This kind of helps us understand the rest of this chapter here, by the way, in 2 Timothy chapter 2. We won't get in that today. But he sees her and says, oh, Eve. This is just me kind of visualizing it. And he takes the other fruit from her hand and he sees it in her hand. And he looks at her and she, he, he sees a difference. And he, he don't see any difference in himself. He's still the same guy, the same man that God created. And then maybe he, he looks at her. He looks at the fruit. Looks at God. And maybe sheds a tear and bites the apple or apricot, or whatever it may be. And he changes. Death takes a hold of him. And he realizes, and as they look at each other, like they've never looked at each other before, this real, maybe a coldness, a chill comes through their bodies, you know, and, and they realize that they're naked. And he looks at Eve, and they're realizing each other that these feelings they have, that none of these things have ever happened before, and then they hear God. They've offended God. And when we look back at that, they hid themselves. Remember, they go and hide, most likely in different locations. But think about that. They offended 
God. Eve was deceived. The Bible makes that very clear. Adam did it 100% knowing that he was rebelling against God. He looked at her, remember what God said. I'm doing it anyway. Maybe with a shed tear, who knows? But they offended God. We are all in his category. Every single one of us. We've all come short of the glory of God. We are one people with a great need for reconciliation to our creator God. We are one people who greatly need a mediator. One people, one God. And then notice here, one mediator. Praise God, there is a mediator. The man, Christ Jesus. Back in, back in uh, 1 Timothy or 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God... And one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, the man, Christ Jesus, one mediator. You know, for for those of us who have any knowledge at all of the of the Old Testament, anybody that's been around anything scriptural, even a, a Jew, Judaism or anything like that, they've heard of Job. They've heard of the trials of Job. I don't think of even people who have never stepped in church before. They have probably heard of the stories of Job. The Bible says that he was perfect and upright and one that feared God and eschewed evil. He was a godly man with a heart for God and a heart for knowing God. But again, or in addition to that, he lived in a different dispensation than we do today. Before the cross, maybe. Or definitely before the cross and probably even before the Mosaic law. He lived in a time before the Ten Commandments. And there are some similarities between his theology and our theology. Very interesting. I think it's kind of unique. In Job chapter 19, verse 25 and 26, he says, Job writes, I know that my Redeemer liveth, and that he shall stand at the latter day upon the earth. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in my flesh shall I see God. Job wrote this. You see, Job believed in a bodily resurrection. He knew that God was his redeemer and that God would someday, one day, somehow stand on this earth and Job would see him in his flesh. It might surprise you to know that the book of Job is believed to be the oldest complete book in the Bible. The oldest complete book in the Bible. And yet his theology still rings true today. His theology is still here today. So there are some similarities between us and Job, but there are some things that Job didn't know. While he believed God's word about a redeemer and his word on every subject it touched on, in fact, Job considered the words of God more important than even the food that he would consume. He did not fully understand how all that would happen. He did not understand how God could be his redeemer. He couldn't fathom how a man could stand alone before God. Read the book of Job. It's a fascinating book. He didn't understand it. How can man stand before God on his own merits? Before God. He couldn't, he couldn't fathom it. Look with me real quick on, in the book of Job in chapter 9. I actually put it up here on the screen. Job chapter 9 verse 28. It's a, it's a lengthy passage if you want to just look there. Now, as I'm, before you start reading that, I want to tell you that this is Job's rebuttal early in the book of Job to one of his friends. And it begins, this chapter here, chapter 9, begins with, how can a man be just with God? That's what Job's 
preface to this is. And we pick up this dialogue here in verse 28. He says, I am afraid. This is to his friends, remember. I am friends, I say. I am, a friend of, I am afraid of all my sorrows. I know that thou wilt not hold me innocent. If I be wicked, why then labor I in vain? If I wash myself with snow water and make my hands never so clean, yet shalt thou plunge me in the ditch, and mine own clothes shall abhor me. Then speaking to his friends about God, for he is not a man as I am, that I should answer him, and we should come together in judgment. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might lay his hand upon us both. You see, Job longed for a days, for a daysman between him and God. He longed for someone to argue on his behalf before God. This is how it connects here to 1 Timothy chapter 2. Job desired the mediator that Paul is speaking of here. He desired Jesus Christ. He had no idea how the Redeemer was going to be, but he knew that he would stand in the old days, but no one to go between him now. He longed for a mediator. He desired, very, right there on a the text, a mediator who would lay his hand upon us both. I mean, think about that. There's, there's God, and there's Job, and Job wants somebody in between to grab a hold of God's hand and grab a hold of Job's hand and never let go. Friends, that's what the Lord has done for us. A mediator. God did send a mediator. It wasn't during Job's earthly life, but in due time. God sent His only begotten Son to be our mediator. The Bible, the Bible says in Galatians 4, 4 and 5, that when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth His Son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them who were under the law. That's, that's you and me. And here in our text, Paul wrote that there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. I mean, think about that for a moment. Think about that. Think about the purpose of a mediator. What is the purpose of a mediator? One dictionary defines mediator as a person who attempts to make people involved in a conflict come to an agreement. A daysman, a go-between, a mediator. It's no, no surprise for us. And this is normally a position filled by an objective or a disinterested party. We kind of understand that. In other words, and here's... Here's kind of, I was trying to make some kind of example here. If Johnny and Caitlin, they were arguing over who's the coolest teenager in the church, right? I certainly wouldn't be able to mediate that, nor would Tyler or Joy or, or Kiki, at least not as honest as possible. There would still be bias on our side. Probably we would maybe even overcompensate for that bias, choosing the other one. Who knows? But if the mediation was over a dispute between Caitlin and Nikita, I can mediate that, right? I'm not related to any one of them. I can tell you who's cooler or who's not, which I think you're both equally cool, by the way. But I could be the mediator there, or even closer than that, who's cooler, Johnny or my daughter, Johnny or Kaylee, in my own home. I think a father can mediate on that. And you can probably see the connections here. But my point is, mediation is a difficult but a unique task. And when, it comes to, and when it comes to mediating between us and God, there is only one man. There is only one mediator who meets that qualification. There is only one. And that is the man, Christ Jesus. And he is uniquely qualified to be our mediator. You see, he is all God and all man. 
He is an apostle and a high priest. An apostle is one who is sent by God to represent God. I mean, he is the apostle of apostles. He is God. He's sent by God. And a high priest is, a, is one who is set apart to represent man to God. So we see both ways here. A high priest points to God, or he, deal, he represents man to God. An apostle, like the apostle Paul and the apostle, these here, they speak for God. They represent God to man. There's a difference there. In Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, the Bible says, Wherefore, holy brethren... Partakers of the heavenly calling, consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus. He is our apostle and our high priest. As God, Jesus is fully qualified to mediate on behalf of God. And as man, he is fully qualified to mediate on behalf of man. He's the only man. He can, he can represent us as a perfect, sinless human being. And he can represent God because he is also God. He is our mediator. He's our go-between. He's our daysman. One people, one God, one mediator. And then notice verses 5 and 6 again in 2 Timothy chapter 2. For there is one God, one mediator between God and men, the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. So again, one people, one God, one mediator, one ransom. Only one. You see, there is only one way that Job can see God in the flesh. There is only one way for us also to see God. There is only one way for us to stand or even come boldly to the throne of God. That one way is Jesus Christ. That one way is a person. He's our mediator, our ransom, Christ Jesus. You know, ransom is defined as what is given or that which is given in exchange for another as the price of his redemption. That's a ransom. You see, sin and Satan, in, in, a, in a strange kind of way, kidnapped us from our creator God. You know, when the Satan came to the, uh, the serpent came there in Genesis chapter 3 and it tempted Eve and, Eve cho and Adam chose uh, to sin wide open, his eyes wide open. Sin and Satan kidnapped us from our Creator. And then we fell in love with our captors. We fell in love with our captors. And now our criminal record serves as sort of a ransom note to God. But the payment was not given to any power of darkness. That's not why God went to the cross. It was not given to any power of darkness and certainly not a payment to Satan, as some theologians might suggest. Neither did God pay a ransom to rescue a handful of souls from some evil human trafficker. No, Jesus gave himself as a ransom for all. And he did not participate in some back and forth operation involving soul trafficking. He shut the business down. He, he paid it all. He was the ransom for all. He became the sin he became the payment for sin. He became the ransom. Praise God, Jesus came, became the ransom. And when he walked out of that grave, he crushed the head of the serpent there in Genesis chapter 3. He conquered death for all men. See, death is the greatest battle we are, that we all face. Death is something that we all have a death sentence on us, if you will. It's something that is upon every single man. Every man might not have COVID. Every man might not have, you know, AIDS or measles or whatever it may be. But every man is under the penalty of death. Every man. And there is only one person that can get us out of that. 
And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. He became the payment for our sin and he conquered death for all people. Now I'm talking of spiritual death. When the Lord returns, there will be a handful of people here who, who will experience, who will not have to experience physical death. But for most of us, we will. But we have power over the second death. He who was born twice will only die once. Praise God. Are you born again? And in a very real sense, back in our text here, it's like Paul began this chapter by putting us all in the same wicked category. And then he made a beeline right for the cross. He ran to the cross. He ran to the ransom. One people, one God, one mediator, one ransom, one cross, one Savior, one way, Christ Jesus. And as we kind of come to a close here, I don't think for a moment that Paul arbitrarily put the title of Christ before Jesus and not after. You know, there's only a few times we read Christ Jesus. Mostly it's Jesus Christ or the Lord Jesus Christ or just Jesus or Christ. But here we see Christ Jesus. Only a few times. Now, the word Christ means anointed one or it means Messiah. And the name Jesus means Yahweh is salvation or Jehovah is salvation, just like Joshua in the Old Testament. And by putting the title Christ before Jesus, to me it seems that Paul is emphasizing the Messiahship of Jesus. In other words, the cross was his anointed purpose. He is the anointed Savior. He is the anointed ransom for your soul and for mine. He is Job's daysman, Job's redeemer. And the most important question this morning, and the most important question of all time, is he your redeemer? Is he your redeemer? Make no mistake, Jesus has paid the price. Your sin has been paid for. You go to hell, it will be against God's will. Your sin has been paid for. He is the ransom. He was the ransom. And he is, get this now, he is the one and only mediator, the one and only ransom, the one and only go-between between us and the one and only God. Jesus Christ. And we don't have to wonder if this applies to us. Maybe we're sitting here this morning or, or maybe uh, we hear this message later on or we're reading the text. Maybe even somebody all across, halfway across the world can read this text and maybe they wonder, does this apply to me? Well, we don't have to wonder because there's really only one people and there's only, really only one God who, as verse 4 states there, who will have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. It's for all people. It's for all men. It's for all women, all people. And regardless of who or what we identify as, God has a desire for you to be saved. He has a desire for every single soul to be saved. Are you His? Do you belong to Him? Let us pray.